This is episode 147 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing the 2016 Annual Enrichment Conference movement. This is session four with Greg Spires. Good morning. How are we doing? I, uh, my name is Greg. I pastor at a church plant down in Medford, Oregon. Church plant uh, is named First Baptist Church of Medford, Oregon. It was planted in 1896 by the elders of Ashland First Baptist. I'm dead serious. Our sister church here in CB Northwest, Ashland First Baptist in 1896 said, there is not a Baptist church in Medford. So they got a group of their folks from their church and uh, moved to Medford and uh, planted our, our little church plant. And uh, so we're grateful for our brothers at uh, Ashland First Baptist. They're not here this week. Uh, but he calls me routinely to remind me that I have a job because of their church's work. <laughs> we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10 this morning. And I'm going to read Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. I know many of you were just standing. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as I read from God's Word. And it's, a, it's an act of worship where we acknowledge together the authority in the room this morning as the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed by His Scripture. So I'm going to read, and you can follow along in your copy of the Scripture, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. It's Matthew chapter, 26, or chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. So do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus, we come to you now in bold declaration that we need you badly. We need you in this moment by the power of your word and spirit to change us, to transform us, to conform us to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we would just ask that in this time you would do that that powerful and miraculous work. I thank you for these brothers and sisters in the Lord seeking to serve you and your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. As you know, in ministry, uh, you journey through a variety of seasons, and there are times of different seasons you face. There are times of, of peace. There are times of conflict. There are times of joy. There are times of sorrow. We will at times find ourselves with plenty, and at other times the cupboards are bare. There are moments when we receive honor, and there are times when we garner insults. The difference between these seasons and the seasons of winter and summer and fall and spring is the seasons of ministry often overlap and mix together. They come in a jumbled, often confusing array of emotions and experiences. It was during one of these times that I confided in one of my fellow staff members at church. We'd been working on a number of things in the congregation, changes to bylaws, structural changes, staff changes, things that provide plenty of opportunity here, differing views from folks on how things ought to go. So I confided in this close friend, and he remains a close friend to this day. I said, you know, with all these things going on, you hear lots of different kinds of feedback, and certainly you don't always hear the feedback directly from the people providing the feedback. It's tough tough sometimes just to walk into the church lobby. I find myself trying to figure out who's upset with me and who's not. It makes me feel like I might be getting a little paranoid. We talked for a while and discussed different things that I had noticed and different things that he had noticed and 
And finally he said to me, he said, you know, Greg, I have to agree with you. I, I think you're, you're being a little paranoid. And, uh, you know, really, actually, a burden sort of lifted in that moment. Um, it was a relief to know that it was sort of all in my head. Um, I just need to simmer down, understand that everything's fine. He continued, though. But you know what they say, Greg? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. <laughs> I fired him. No, I'm kidding. Fear is a reality in the ministry of the local church. Just as it's a really a reality in all areas of human life and work, but fear in its nature is the result of some unknown. Understanding fear then is, is like trying to juggle water. What are you afraid of, someone might ask, and, and they might reply, well, I don't know what's going to happen next week. Well, how can we be afraid of something we don't know? But question someone's fear of the unknown, and you're probably going to get a very pointed response. The fear is such a universal and confounding experience that there are hundreds and thousands of insights from well-known people intended to help us understand how to overcome and cope with fear, to address the fear we face all the time. As some would have us overcome fear through actions. Dale Carnegie said it this way, inaction breeds doubt and fear. Action breeds confidence and courage. If you want to conquer fear, do not sit at home and think about it. Go and get busy. The musician Jim Morrison would see overcoming fear and being exposed to it. He said, expose yourself to your deepest fear. After that, fear has no power. The fear of freedom shrinks and vanishes and you are free. Eleanor Roosevelt likewise counseled us to seek fear out by saying, do one thing every day that scares you. Something about fear from a metaphysical viewpoint, like C.S. Lewis when he observed, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. Bertrand Russell also said, fear is the main source of superstition and the one main source of cruelty. To conquer fear is the beginning of wisdom. In a similar vein, Marcus Aurelius thought, if you are distressed about anything external, the pain is not due to the thing itself, but to your estimate of it, and this you have the power to revoke at any moment. A couple of more. Nelson Mandela would have us see fear as a constant, yet call us to muster the strength to strive through it. He commented, I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. In the same way, illustrating the relationship between bravery and fear, George Martin penned these words for his character, Eddard Stark. In response to his son's question, Father, can a man still be brave? If he's afraid, that is the only time a man can be brave, his father told him. When Jesus sent his disciples out into mission, he knew they would be afraid. He knew the situations they would find themselves in would provide ample opportunity for their imaginations to run, to try and seek answers to the question, what's going to happen? They would face opponents both physical and spiritual. They would be betrayed, rejected, persecuted, punished. All of these kinds of things will naturally lead to fear. His counsel in regard to this fear is very different than the quotes that I just read. Interestingly, he is not overly concerned with their ability to overcome fear. Perhaps surprisingly, he doesn't offer any words to inspire bravery. He doesn't call them to reach inside and muster the courage of their inner centurion, walk bravely in the face of difficulty, and somehow in a first century Jewish fisherman sort of way, cowboy up. Now, don't misunderstand. He knows clearly that fear has the potential to be a significant barrier to the mission he has called them to. He does offer a warning to them, 
because he knows that when his disciples go out on mission, they will be afraid, no doubt about it. In fact, he tells them to be afraid. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start at Matthew verse 26. He says to his disciples in Matthew 10 verse 26, do not be afraid of who? Them. This pronoun them refers back to a variety of people mentioned earlier in Matthew chapter 10. And as a pastor, I find them very interesting. A group of people generally defined, giving the disciples all kinds of problems and serious ones at that. Pastors, one or two here today. Do you have any thems back home? How often is it that we have these thems? We don't even know who they are. They are a mist, a ghost, a, a brief apparition, the bump in the night. They are the people in the people are saying. They are the silent, silent partner behind the, I wouldn't bring this up if it was just me. They are the faceless, nameless, voiceless crowd behind the, if one person is saying it, then we know many more are thinking it. We don't see them, we don't talk to them, we don't know them, but somehow they accuse us nonetheless because we fear them. Do not fear them, Jesus says. So here in Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, Jesus explains to us how and why not to fear them. And I want to walk through his argument and allow his words to settle into our hearts and by his spirit to change us. If I may distill these verses to a brief statement, I'd say it this way. Fear God, not them. Fear God, not them. Jesus here is exposing our hearts. Our fear of them, whoever that is, where you live and where you minister, is not the problem. It is simply the indication of a far, far greater problem. The real issue with our hearts is that we don't fear God. Jesus indicates that a fear of these these others is a plain evidence that we lack a fear of God. Just as it is true that we can't serve both God and money, as, as Mark shared with us, we can't fear both them and God. It is very difficult to advance the kingdom of God in gospel proclamation if we fear them and not God. The fix to our fear of them is not to overcome fear, work through fear, confront fear, or any of these other things we ought to do. The fix is we must properly place our fear. Fear God, not them. Let's take a closer look at how Jesus wants to redirect our fears here. First, in verses 26 through 27, Jesus wants us really to have a proper view of how redemptive history works. Things that appear hidden and undisclosed today will not always be hidden and undisclosed. Jesus confronts us with the truth that enables us to answer an important question in the ministry of the gospel. What's the payoff? What's the payoff to a ministry in the gospel of Jesus Christ? And as Jesus often does, he reorients our view away from our short few years of life in ministry. The Gospel of Matthew, I think, of all the Gospels, is the most eschatological. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you have a routine emphasis on that day, the day of the Lord. Chapters 24 and 25 in particular show us that Jesus really wants his disciples on any given day to live and minister with that day in mind. The affirmation of the diligent gospel minister is that day. When it comes to our work in the local church and our, our call to be serious about the mission of Jesus Christ, we're confronted with questions that can give rise to all kinds of fears and all kinds of anxieties, but those fears and anxieties are rooted in today, not that day. For example, we ask a question like this, will it work? Anybody ever ask that question when you're thinking about ministry? Will it work? 
God has placed in you a burden to see the gospel take root in your church and in your community, but you don't know if it's going to work. You don't know if what you're doing will be effective. You're not sure if your ideas are right or useful or helpful. Not only that, the great and mighty them will join in the chorus of questioning. Why are we doing this? This will never work. We've never done it this way before. So when is our payoff for faithful gospel ministry? Our payoff is that day. There will be a day when all that has been done will be disclosed. With that in mind, I want us to understand two correctives from Jesus we must acknowledge in ministry as ministry leaders in that reality. The first corrective is this. Whatever your metrics for determining effectiveness, none of them matters as much as that day. Hear me. The only metric that matters is that day. And take a minute right now, and I want you to think about what you imagine is your great ministry failure. Aren't you glad you came now? That initiative you put in place that nobody got behind, that event you arranged that got no traction, the counseling session that blew up in your face, the marriage that wasn't restored, that discipleship relationship that disintegrated. In many cases, on that day, Jesus, knowing your heart, will declare for all to hear, dude, you rocked that. You nailed that. Do you really think on that day when Jesus affirms his work that you are going to do uh, right now in faithfulness, do you think on that day you are going to care how many people showed up? Are you going to be concerned about your reputation on that day? No way. The king of the universe is going to make known the power of, of his work in you. No other short-term, arbitrary metric that you and I might imagine will matter. Not on that day when our gaze is fixed on our king and our savior. The reality of ministry in a broken world requires that our, our perspective be rooted in that day. And we, we need to be honest about this. Rebellious, hard-hearted people will oppose you and your spirit-filled ministry vision. They will not only oppose you, they will successfully inhibit some of the work that you are called to do. They do, in, in fact, have the power to destroy your reputation through falsehoods, half-truths, backroom discussions. They can, in fact, derail what you see as God's calling. So if you're going to attach your sense of ministry effectiveness to anything other than that day, then you are granting those who oppose you the, the power to affect your sense of ministry effectiveness. This is not power that Christ has given them. It is power that we have given them. However, if the only metric we care about is that day, we will always see our effectiveness as rooted in Christ himself. The second corrective is our sense of fairness. In our fear of them, we can find ourselves feeling terribly alone. The unfairness of how we are treated can sometimes be overwhelming. Our deep sense of justice is, in fact, built into us because we are made in the image of God. How is it that these people who oppose the redemptive work of Christ can wield so much power? Where is the justice? Again, Jesus points to that day. Those backroom conversations, those underhanded tricks those who were too cowardly to oppose you to your face, but in passive-aggressive fashion undermined the work that God was calling you to, nothing that is concealed will not be disclosed. We gain tremendous strength as leaders when we learn to lead in the footsteps of Jesus. We don't have to fight for vindication. There is a calm assurance that settles on 
spirit-filled leaders as we rest. That day will come. This isn't a call for passivity or a call for disengagement. This is a call for rest. As we lead, as we influence, as we initiate, as we catalyze, we do so in the calm rest found only in the finished work of our Savior. We lead in strength because of who we follow, not because of who follows us. We lead in strength because of who we follow, not because of who follows us. Fear God, not them. That day is coming. Look with me at verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be of the, afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Keeping in mind, Jesus here is talking to who? Disciples. He's not talking to Pharisees or others who rejected him. He's talking to his disciples. Fear God, not them. Why? God is the scary one. I'm always astonished when people quote Philippians 1 verse 6. I'm sure you haven't memorized, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Usually when this verse is quoted, it is an intended to bring a, a sense of comfort. I'm not perfect, but God isn't finished with me yet. This is a great comfort. That is, if the Bible for you is nothing more than source material for greeting cards and bumper stickers. The verse, Philippians 1.6, should scare the heebie-jeebies out of you. As we've said, that day, that day is our vindication, our payoff, the only metric that matters. And Philippians 1.6 reminds us that God is only concerned about that day. He will have us ready for that day, my friends. Clearly, God is much more concerned about that day than you and I are. God will literally do anything to get us ready for that day. You know what I'm talking about. Your flesh needs to die, and dying sucks. We worry about the seemingly great and powerful them. They can hurt us, our ministry, our families. They can even kill us. Well, God says their bag of tricks is small potatoes. God can take your wife. God can take your husband. God can take your children. God can take your health. God can take your money. He can take your friends. He can take your reputation. Unlike them, God knows the things that we worship that aren't Him. He will do whatever He needs to do to get us to abandon our idols. He will do whatever He needs to do to get us to abandon our idols. Don't understand. I don't take that lightly. Jesus doesn't take that lightly, and, and we'll look at the reasons why in verses 29 through 31. But what we discover from Jesus here is that the primary reason we fear them is because we have turned God into little more than a cuddle buddy. He is a warm blanket just pulled from a dryer. He is a soft couch, a mug of coffee, and a sunrise. It's okay, God isn't finished with me yet. Friends, God isn't finished with you yet. And if you knew what he was up to, in order to get the job done, I guarantee you, you would not be okay with it. When did we decide the fear of the Lord isn't really fear? It has become a soft-pedaled notion of respect and admiration. I'm sorry, but every time God shows up in the Bible, people sort of freak out. The best example, of course, is Isaiah's experience in Isaiah chapter 6. God shows up in glory and power and holiness, and Isaiah's response was true worship. 
I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. At the risk of sounding uncouth, the point here for Jesus in Matthew 10 is to scare the hell out of you. The worst thing that anyone could do to you is kill you. God condemns people to hell. Revelation 14.10 should be a wake-up call to anyone who simply sees God as the big teddy bear in the sky. Those who reject the lamb and worship the beast, it says, listen, will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, what? And of the lamb. Jesus is not calling us here to question our identity in him. Rather, what he is simply pointing out is the insanity of the fear we have for people and the fear we have for the circumstances of this life in light of the God we serve. Fearing God is fear that is properly placed. He takes counsel with himself alone. He has all power and might and is uncompromisingly committed to his purpose and will, specifically to conform us into the image of his son, Jesus. Jesus' command in Matthew 10, 28 is unflinching. Don't fear them. Do fear God. To fear them is to fail to fear God and to misunderstand the seriousness in which God takes his mission. There are many times in ministry where we're going to have to decide between fidelity to the redemptive, disciple-making mission of God and keeping the people currently sitting in our churches happy. How we handle those kinds of situations will depend on who we fear. Fear God, not them. God is the scary one. Perhaps Jesus, knowing that we, how we might respond to that verse, helps us here in the remaining verses. It's a pretty strong statement and a very strong command. If left on its own, we could possibly be paralyzed in the awareness of how small we are in the hands of a powerful and holy God. But not only that, we might mistakenly allow a holy fear of God to get in the way of an intimate and loving relationship with Him. So quickly on the heels of this reality of the fear we must have for God, given who He is, He reminds us of who we are in Him. Fear God, not them, because God is trustworthy. Fear God, not them. God is trustworthy. Fear, of course, reveals who we trust. A real quick test makes this case pretty simply. Let's say, for example, just for example, your ministry is struggling with its finances. Now, I know that's not any of us here. They couldn't, those folks couldn't make it this week, right? But just for the sake of argument, we'll think about it. Your church is broke. You're burning through reserves like they're going out of style. You'd be missing payroll if you had payroll. And this causes all kinds of problems. The stuff you want to do, you don't have the funding for. Not only that, you know the people in your church are evaluating the ministry of the church based on the attendance and the giving figures. And if you're like our church, you might put one or both of those pieces of information in the worship folder or the bulletin every week. Of course the giving is down. The preaching is lousy, you think you hear. Of course there isn't any money. The music is awful, if you call that music. Of course more families aren't coming. The kids' program is lame. Of course people don't give. The activities program at the local nursing home is more exciting than the youth group. Oh, I've been there. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> if you don't have money, these problems will get worse, and you'll be confirmed as a failure. Get more money, you can fix these problems. Don't have money, these problems get worse, and all of a sudden you've got all kinds of fear and anxiety. Why? You trust what you fear. Your anxiety reveals that you trust money can hurt your ministry and money can fix your ministry. Fear doesn't spiritualize like us. 
we say silly things like, well, of course I know God does the work and money is just a tool. This is true, but your, your fear reveals that you don't buy that. It would be better to just quit lying to yourself and others and, and admit what you trust, dollar signs. Let's walk this out a bit to see what we think. Let's say for, just for grins here, that your ministry goes from broke to booming overnight. Local bigwig CEO gets saved at a service you conducted, and he starts writing big checks. Do you really think that adding money to a church is going to reduce the problems of your church? Sure, your bills will be paid, and you can fund some ministries better, but you want to find out where people's territories lie, where their sacred ground is, where their lines of authority and perceived autonomy are? Just add money to this situation. All of a sudden, you have conflict on your hands you never imagined. Why weren't these people fighting before? Because they had nothing to fight over. Now there is ministry interest to pursue to the exclusion of other ministries and silo ministries to defend and uphold. And who does this pastor think he is? He acts like he thinks he's in charge. Now the whispers come out about your autocratic and domineering leadership. No one cared before because you had a budget of $12.50. Now there's real money on the line. Where does this pastor get off thinking he should be making these decisions? Money can't wreck our ministry. Money cannot fix our ministry. But our fear makes it clear that at a base level, we trust it. Money is not trustworthy. God is trustworthy. A nameless sparrow falls to the forest floor in a forest that no human eye has ever seen. God sees that sparrow, and the bird did not fall to the ground without direct permission of God himself. God himself knows right now the number of hairs on your head. For some of you, that's not a big deal. But keep in mind, though, you could ask God regarding any day in your life at any moment. March 3rd, 1992, 2 p.m., God would say, now that was a good hair day. Here's your number. He knows you. He knows all about you. He cares and knows more about the individual details of your life more than you do. If we understand the author of the book of Hebrews correctly, God is also intimately aware with the struggles you experience and feel. He has been through them to the fullest degree. He knows your temptations. He knows your pain. He knows your sadness. He knows your joy. He knows your happiness. In fact, I would suggest that he knows what you are feeling more than you know yourself. We're constantly masking and medicating the struggles we deal with. He has no need to do so. We feel sad, so we divert ourselves with leisure or busyness. We feel pain, so we medicate with alcohol or binge-watching on Netflix. God experiences these things with us, and He has no need to mask or medicate. He knows what it is like for us, even to... the a greater degree than we know ourselves. The great and powerful them, they don't know your struggles. And they only care to the degree that you fit into their agenda. As soon as you don't line up with what they want, their care will disappear. God, on the other hand, has designed His agenda specifically so that you would be a part of it. It is an expression of His limitless love and His limitless care for you. God loves us too much to do anything other than His work to conform us into Jesus. He loves us too much to allow our lives and our churches to do anything other than accomplish His, his mission to make disciples through gospel proclamation. God loves us too much to haphazardly try to work us into His eternal redemptive plan. Rather, we have always been the plan. You have always been the plan. The last thing, anything, I should say this, the last thing any of us should want is for God to back off. 
what He is giving us in allowing us to be workers in His mission is the greatest gift. We must be aware, though, He is God. His mission is not manageable. His mission is, in fact, not possible for us. And frankly, His mission is not popular. Knowing how He must work to engage us in His mission, well, it can be frightening. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul has been anointed the first king of of Israel. He has mustered his troops to oppose the Philistines. He's he's got about 3,000 soldiers. 2,000 of the soldiers are under his personal uh, command. Another 1,000 soldiers are under the command of his son, Jonathan. Jonathan takes his 1,000 soldiers, it's a hard word to say, soldiers, and he conquers a Philistine outpost. This was sort of like poking a stick into a sleeping dog's eye. In response, Philistia mustered the full force of the military and gathered in opposition to King Saul. Their army is described as being as numerous as the sand on the seashore. King Saul's army at this point now looks very tiny. The situation goes from bad to worse. Arrangements had been made for King Saul to have the prophet Samuel come out and offer a sacrifice to seek the Lord's blessing. As you know, this was an important step to take. The king needed to ensure that he was in the purpose and will of God so he could work in the power of God. As is typical for most people who work in ministry, Samuel was running late. He probably had a counseling appointment run long or maybe an elbow to drop by for a quick chat about the sermon from last week. Anywho, Samuel was late. The Bible tells us that in the delay... Saul's troops began to flee. It really was simple math. Gigantic Philistine army, small, ill-equipped Israeli army. We're out of here. The only fix would be to have God present, and it seemed the man of God couldn't be bothered to show up. It goes without saying, of course, that this delay was on purpose, and it was intended to reveal the condition of Saul's heart based on who he feared. Saul reveals quickly who he fears. Who is it? The Philistines. So Saul offers the sacrifice himself, which, of course, is totally forbidden. This really, of course, is a very pragmatic solution. If things don't change, the army will literally be gone. A quick sacrifice won't hurt anyone. It'll, it'll keep the soldiers from leaving. Samuel shows up just as the sacrifice is being concluded, and his words to Saul were severe. Because of his failure to wait for God, the kingdom of Israel would be ripped from his hands and given to one who would serve God with his whole heart. The Bible tells us that by the time Samuel showed up, Saul only had 600 men left. 1,400 of his men had already fled the scene. This was really a very, very dangerous situation. Here's the thing. God wanted to defeat the Philistines, didn't he? He just wanted to do it with a smaller army. And this isn't even the first time that God has done this. Saul could have known this simply by thinking about the life of Gideon, who defeated an even greater army than this with 300 men. God wants and plans on using you to accomplish his mission of making disciples. However, he will almost certainly do it in ways that are very scary to you. In those moments, you must search your heart to fear the one who deserves your fear, God. Fear God, not them, because God is trustworthy. Back in the late 1960s, my church started a kindergarten class. The public schools in Medford didn't have kindergarten then. The church offered one uh, as a service to the community and the church members. One thing led to another, and the school grew from a kindergarten class to a kindergarten through sixth grade school. The students were mostly children from our church, and the faculty and staff were members of our church. Eventually, the school was kindergarten through 12th grade school. There was a certain period of time where the high school was separate, but later on, the high school was added back in until eventually the 
the school of our church had a pre-K through 12th grade academic program. The pre-K through 8th grade school is known as Grace Christian School in Medford. And the high school is known as Cascade Christian High School. The school started by the church was always a ministry of our church, FBC. And certainly it was larger than our Awana Club and our youth group, our women's ministry, our men's ministry. However, from an organizational standpoint, it was a, it was a part of our church. The elders served as the school board. The superintendent of the school reported to the pastor. At its peak... The school had over 1,000 students, over 100 various staff members. The budget was, for the school was multiplied millions of dollars on an annual basis. There were various buildings and lands. They were all paid for. Then through a variety of circumstances, we came to the realization that the church should let the school go. Our conviction was that we needed to make this transition in order to be better about the mission of God to reach the lost of Medford and Jackson County. We wanted the mission of our church to be wholly focused on redeeming lost people through the proclamation of the gospel. Now understand that the school ministry wasn't opposed to that mission, but it just became clear to us that this is what we were to do. So we began a process, it took almost two years, to turn Grace Christian School and Cascade Christian High School over to an independent board to run as a ministry totally on their own. It was, it was really important to the elders at FBC that we approach this decision as a church family, knowing that this decision would be very difficult for a lot of us at the church. Most of the people of our church had supported the schools from their very beginning. They donated money, they donated volunteer hours. In the early days, there was no custodial crew, and the people from our church would go down every night, clean the toilets, mop the floors. Not only that, but through a variety of leadership transitions and changes in the ministry landscape in, in Medford, our church in 2015 was not the gigantic ministry behemoth that it was in the 70s and 80s. There was, there was a great sense of loss. There were questions swirling about what's going to happen at our church? What's going to happen at FBC? It seemed like the trajectory of the school was upward and onward, while the trajectory of the church was not so much. This was the environment in which the elders introduced this change. For over a year, we met with people. We answered questions. We did research, and we prayed that doesn't even address the countless hours of legal and organizational work that had to be done to, to put this in place. Our board determined not to move ahead without seeing God also work in our people. So even though the board didn't need the, the congregation to vote and approve it, we put it to a vote nonetheless, and 85% of our members voted to affirm the decision. So in August of this last year, just this last summer, we signed the closing documents, and our church transferred millions of dollars worth of buildings, Land, property, cash, equity accounts to a new school board that's totally independent of us. The church still has our own facility, of course, but any of the facilities that weren't related to our church were just simply given away. I think I'm talking to a room full of ministry leaders. I doubt I have to outline for you the kinds of fears that this sort of change uh, would bring about for me and the elders of FBC. I was worried about the great pitchfork and torch event. It never came to fruition, not in a literal sense in any way. For the sake of time, I want to focus just on one thing in relation to the fears related with this change for us, and that was a fear of insignificance. What if we don't matter? This concern was floating to the surface as we understood, at least on the surface, what was happening in a church, and we were then comparing it to what we saw happening at this large Christian school. And this, this concern was voiced in a number of ways, and, and in almost all cases from a heart, a heart of sincere love and concern for God and His people. But this significant change flushed out this latent fear that was dormant, long hidden. And here's the gist of that fear. 
Grace Christian and Cascade Christian were the one thing this church has done right. And now we've gotten rid of them. I'm a preacher. But if that concern is true, my preaching doesn't matter. What about our volunteer worship leaders giving themselves emotionally and spiritually week in and week out? If this concern is true, that's all a total waste of time. What about our prayer teams meeting throughout the week, each and every week? Pointless, according to this perspective, really just a bunch of retirees who can't really do ministry that matters anymore, right? Isn't that what this concern reveals? How is this fear of insignificance showing up in your ministry context? Certainly, we've all seen it in some form. Since you've changed the music, everyone's leaving. Since you've canceled evening service, everyone's leaving. Since you started small groups, now instead of people leaving on their own, they now leave in large groups. (laughs) Nice work, Pastor. Sure, we get it, Pastor. Not all the new people are going to stay, but the Smiths, they're leaving. They've been here for years. If they're leaving, something must be wrong. Because somehow the Smiths have a corner on what ought to be. You had to let the children's pastor go, okay, I know you can't really talk about why, but I just have to say where there's smoke, there's fire, so something must be up. These kind of comments and the myriad others like them come from a place of fear, fear of not mattering, fear of insignificance. What happens when this fear begins to work in our churches? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was just recently named the 2016 recipient of the Templeton Prize, I think offers a helpful understanding, and he says this, at times of great turbulence and change, cultures become hedgehogs. They roll up and focus all their energies inward, presenting only sharp, prickly spines to the world outside. That is a symptom of fear, and faith should be the great antidote to fear. Have you seen in your church the symptom of prickly spines showing up? I think this insight is valuable in helping us identify places where fear has taken root. Charles Spurgeon helps us see how properly placed fear actually enables us to engage in effective ministry for the kingdom of God. And he says this in his comments on Hebrews 11.7 from his sermon on faith and fear in Noah's life. He said this, quote, Fear was the moving force. Faith was the living principle, but fear was the moving power. For the text puts it, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. Faith molded him, but fear moved him. Faith and fear together led Noah to do as God commanded him. When fear is grafted upon faith, it brings forth good fruit as in this case. Who do you fear? We're called to fear God, not them. Who do you fear? Some of us, if not literally, literally, at least metaphorically, are in fetal position under our desks, terrified. For others, we fear, so we control. No detail is overlooked. No decision is made without our review. We scrutinize and we manage the minutia because we hate the feeling of not knowing. This is no less fearful than the one hiding under his desk. Some of us fear so our emotions are out of control. We are afraid so we feel weak, but we express it as anger or bravado. We overwhelm others with the force of our passion and our anger. In this way, we have a feeling of being able to manage the unknowns. This many times comes from a place of fear. There might be a few of us who fear and are so frozen that we're paralyzed. We might even uh, spiritualize our paralysis by just saying we want to pray through it some more. Praying through a decision is absolutely necessary. Doing so to delay making a decision is not prayer, it is fear. Finally, Some of you know that your church is not on mission. Right now, sitting here, you already know what needs to happen. 
you are delaying, you are waiting, and you are hoping that God will reveal some other way, but you already know where God is leading, but you're afraid. What I'm asking you to do is call a spade a spade. You fear them and not God. In that moment of repentance, you're going to find yourself in good company. Jesus praying in the garden, stress and anxiety flowing from his brow in big, sweaty drops of blood. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. He knew what he had ahead of him, and he feared God more. Driven by a love of God, driven by a love for us, aware of the might of God and the impotence of his alleged enemies, he followed God's will to the cross for you. When you have succumbed to your fear, Jesus handles it perfectly on your behalf. And the Father receives you as his son, as his daughter. But as a loving act of worship, perhaps we could stop giving our fear to those who don't deserve it and fear God, not them. Would you stand with me as we pray? Jesus, we just come before you and want our hearts just wide open. You know our fear. It's silly that we try to hide it. God, I ask just in this moment, just of quiet reflection, that your Holy Spirit right now would just do a mighty work. God, give us the strength right now to name it and say, I fear them. I I shouldn't fear them, I know it, but I do. God, I pray that you would open up by the power of your word and your spirit this understanding of your awesomeness that despite your glory and your power and and your might, we still have a loving relationship with you. God, I pray for, especially this morning, for pastors who are here who are living with fear and anxiety. I ask you, God, that you would, would help them to move that to you. They would no longer have fear of those people who can't do anything to them. They would no longer trust the things of this world to accomplish ministry. But instead, God, they would see you, fear you, and love you. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for your grace that's new again today. We thank you for never giving up on us until that day returns and comes. In Jesus' name, amen.